Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. We're going in Matthew 19, verses 27 to Matthew 20, verse 16. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon he went out and still still found others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money, or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Thanks, Lucas. Good afternoon, everyone. Nice to be here, especially if you're visiting or new. Welcome. My name's Steve. Um, let me just hire this stand up. Welcome to everyone online as well. Nice to have you with us. So, um, I want a show of hands, and online you can uh, put your hands up too. And remember, we are in a church meeting, so there can be no lying. Um, okay, ready? Who has ever said the phrase, it's not fair. Show of hands. If I see any hands down, you're going to get looked at. Okay, keep your hands up. Right, so you can put them down. If you've ever said it's not fair with your blood boiling and steam coming out of your ears, put your hands down. If you haven't, yeah, we all have. I saw a, hand, a couple of hands go down. But I'm going to come to you after the service. It's not fair. It's one of the earlier. You can put your hands down now. Thank you. Helena was like, when do I get to put my hand down? No. Um, it's, it's one of the earliest phrases we know. It's not fair. The title of today's talk is Why Grace Offends Us. What is grace? The unmerited favor of God to the undeserving and unlikely. That's grace. The unmerited favor of God to the undeserving and unlikely. We live in a culture that takes offense at all sorts of things, even the smallest things. Sometimes with good warrant, often with not warrant. 
You might have heard the term the snowflake generation. It's a, a derogatory term to refer to millennials, a generation that are easily offended, attention-seeking, and lack resilience. Whatever you might think of modern culture and its ability to be offended, what is true of every culture, in all human history, to every human heart, to this day, is that at some point, God's grace will offend you. This is not for some people to find offensive. The parable says everyone at some point is going to find grace offensive. And Matthew chapter 20 tells us why that's the case. Because grace is not fair. When someone else receives blessing, when someone else receives the generosity of God into their life and they haven't worked as hard as you, grace becomes very offensive to us all. They're not as good as us. They're not as moral as us. They haven't done as much as us. And, and yet they seem to be having an easier life of it. And we find it offensive. And like the hardworking laborers in the parable, verse 11, we grumble. And verse 12, we complain. Grace is amazing, but it's really infuriating. That's what the parable's about. Let me put it another way to drive the point home. Over, over the years, I've had probably dozens, if not hundreds, of conversations with people that are not followers of Jesus about the gospel, what we believe. And at some point, the topic of grace will probably come up in a conversation. And I'll explain to the person that in the Christian faith, you're not accepted into God's family because you've been good. You accept that's by works. You're accepted by grace when you were not good, you received his favor. And at some point in the conversation with many people, they will understand grace, and it will not be uncommon for them to give me a hypothetical scenario like this. See if you recognize it from any conversations you've ever had, or maybe you think like this. They'll say this, Steve, are you telling me that if Mother Teresa never actually acknowledged Jesus as Savior and Lord and did all her good works for selfish ambition? And are you telling me that Hitler, despite all his evil and all the atrocities he made on, his, on earth, if on his deathbed, sought Jesus for forgiveness? Are you telling me Mother Teresa is in hell and Hitler is in heaven? We know that kind of question, don't we? I never want to answer the question, but why? Because I'm not the just judge of the earth. It's, it's not my place to answer the question. So what does the judge of all the earth say to the question? Did you see it at the start and the end of the parable? But many who are first, they will be last. And many who are last will be first. 19 verse 20, 30. 2016, after the parable, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. Grace is not fair when you look at it from a worldly point of view. In other words, yes, Mr. or Mrs. who's asking me that question, in your hypothetical scenario that you've just posed to me about Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler, yes, it could be true what you say. And if that offends you, you have understood the offense of grace. Grace is really annoying, isn't it? At times. 
The unmerited favor of God to the undeserving and the likely at some point is going to make your blood boil, steam come out of your ears, and you're going to grumble and complain and insist it's not fair. So let's look at the parable and try to understand why this is. It's a story where some appear more deserving, yet all are equally rewarded. It's not the story of the underpaid, it's the story of the overpaid. And it's a story that's very common from the ancient world, an agricultural worker in Israel looking for work, and the owner of a vineyard uh, going to hire out workers. Most likely, this, this is inference, it's harvest time. That's why the landowner leaves all these extra workers and keeps going to get the workers. You know, it's, it's, it's at harvest time, you have a limited period, you've got a lot of work to do, many hands make light work, you need extra laborers. And so the owner of the vineyard heads off to the special part of the marketplace in Israel for those who are looking for work so he can gather them to work his vineyard. To put it in a modern-day context, we're approaching Christmas, and the, the, the toy store in Dublin Smiths always takes in extra workers for the Christmas season. They know it's going to get busy. They know it's going to get hectic. It's all hands on deck. It's like harvest time in ancient Israel. So go and recruit some more workers for the busy month leading up to Christmas. The thing is, harvest time doesn't quite explain the actions of our employer. He's rather eccentric, this employer. I call him eccentric for a reason. Like, why didn't he plan how many workers he was going to need at the start of the day and just get them all then, rather than go back again and again and again? He goes five times, doesn't he? And you think if he's any kind of employer, he would figure out, this is kind of what I need to get done, this is how many workers I'll get. But he doesn't. He sort of keeps going there and back, there and back. And he, and he doesn't send anyone else to recruit the work. He doesn't have an HR department, you know? Could you go and get the new workers, please? He goes, the boss, the CEO, walks off to every five times. He, and that's a waste of time. I mean, why would you, you, you need to be organizing the vineyard, and you're probably one of the best workers. You know your vineyard, and yet you're spending all this time going backwards and forth. Harvest time doesn't quite explain it. Did he miscount? What's going on? The story's familiar, but it's not familiar. Why does he go out again and again? And here's another question. Was it really worth going out at 5 p.m. to get a few workers for the last hour? For one hour's work, was it really worth all that effort to go and find them? Right at the end of the day, like the 11th hour, what are they going to be able to do for the last hour? You're going to have to train them. You know, it's what can be achieved. So maybe if we focus a bit more on the motivation and consider his motivation, why did he go out to hire them? Did he go out to hire them because they need him? Or they need work, I should say. Or did he go out to hire them because he cares for them? Does he see their plight? Does he see their desperation? Does he see their hunger? Does he see the guilt and shame on their face? Men of the ancient world who could not find work to feed their families could not go home with dignity and their heads held up high. Maybe he employs them because it's harvest time and he needs them, or maybe he employs them because he cares about the down and outs of society, the hungry, the unemployed, and as the day wears on, the increasingly hopeless. 
And yes, that's why maybe he goes himself and not the HR department. He wants to look the men in the eyes and say, I want you to come and work for me. He wants to make this a personal invitation. It's similar to the story of the prodigal sons, isn't it? If you know that story, the father goes out to both sons and has the same tenderness and love for both sons. One has worked very, very hard and now feels he deserves more, and one has made a mess of things and feels he deserves nothing, and yet both deserve the same, uh, both receive, I should say, the same love and invitation from the father to join the feast. And as in our parable in Matthew chapter 20, the older brother finds grace infuriating that someone undeserving and unlikely who's done nothing but made a mess of it should receive the same invitation to the feast as the one who's worked so hard. The elder brother cannot stand the generosity of the father to his scum of a younger brother. And the landowner in our parable is certainly generous. A denarius was a generous day's wage. It wasn't the minimum wage. This was a good wage for a day's pay. The, min the minimum wage today is 10 euros 20. So imagine working 20 hours, uh, 12 hours a day over, you know, from, from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. at Smith's over Christmas. You earn 122 euros a day, but this employer is generous. So let's round it up to 200 euros a day. That's 1,000 a week. That's 4,000 a month. Some students are going, oh, I can make 4,000 a month up to Christmas. A generous employer. And notice this is very important to understand the parable. It's only those who are hired first that get told their pay before they begin. Verse 2. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. To those hired second, verse 4, he just says, I'll pay you whatever is right. He doesn't commit to a number. We're not told anything about the pay of those hired later and those hired at five o'clock for just one hour. We don't even know what he said to them about pay. So now comes the moment of shock in the parable, and Jesus intends to shock you and me. It's paycheck at the end of the day. And the ones hired last who've basically done no work, they've arrived, they've been shown what to do, they've done a ton, little bit of work, and the day's finished. And they come to receive their pay after like 30 minutes work or something. And they get a denarius. You can imagine the workers from the start of the day thinking, well, let me just do the maths. If the one who works one hour gets paid a denarius, I've worked 11 hours more than them. Yeah, if we're counting up what I deserve according to the minimum wage and a bit generous, that's about 2,200 2, euros for a day's work. Whew. Shock number two, those that hired first get the same pay. Whether you worked one hour or you worked 12 hours, you got the same pay. This is not fair. And so now the grumbling starts. You've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. A bit like someone who works Christmas Eve in Smith's toy store and all the chaos in all the toys flying everywhere in all the stress in all the upset children because their toys gone and all the snappy parents because they've got too much going on and you handle all that pressure and all that exhaustion. You do your whole 12 hours at Smith's toy store leading up to Christmas and you think it's all worth it because I'm going to get paid a good wage for today. And then you see your friend who missed all that stress, just rocks up at five o'clock for the last hour, and they get paid the same 
as you. You've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. This is not fair. Well, hang on a minute, Jesus says. He pushes back at them, doesn't he? Verse 13. I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. No one receives less than they deserve. Some receive far more. No one receives anything that wasn't promised them. It's not a parable of the underpaid. It's the parable of the overpaid. But we think it's about being underpaid. In the parable, no one loses anything. No one is treated unfairly. No one is shortchanged. And yet we feel they are. Why? Grace. It offends. And so Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter. He questions the employee's right to claim control over how he, the employer, must use his money. It's as if they feel they have leverage. Now, well, now I've done all this work. I can tell you how to pay people. So verse 15. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Do you think that because you've worked hard, like you now get leverage over what I do with my money? Hmm, that doesn't seem to make sense. Do you think you have a right over my money? Do you think that because you've borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day that I, I can't bless other people? Oh, really? Do you think I owe you now because you just did me a day's work? Are you envious because I'm generous? The legalism in every human heart is revealed when God blesses others and they haven't worked as hard as you. You feel like he owes you more. He owes you better. You can't understand why others get blessed and you're not. You see, that's the difference between religion, where we work to get in God's good books, and the gospel, when we're accepted by grace. There's two paradigms at work in every human heart, often competing. Religion says, I obey, so God accepts me, and I deserve to be accepted. The gospel says I'm accepted when I wasn't deserving, and therefore now I obey. Two paradigms. Religion says I'm good, I've worked hard, and therefore God owes me a good life. The gospel says I'm not good, and even when I worked hard, so much of my hard work had selfish ambition at the heart of it. Therefore God owes me nothing. So Jesus ends the parable. So the last will be first and the first will be last. In other words, all are equal before God. There is no hierarchy in God's kingdom because no one has earned it. That is why in Matthew chapter 19, the chapter before, the little children end up in and the rich young ruler ends up out. God's kingdom inverts and reverses human values. It's upside down. God's generosity transcends human understanding of fairness. And so this parable can be applied to the final judgment of all humankind. We will all one day stand before the righteous, just, good, and merciful God on that final day, and he will give us a verdict over our lives of how we've worked in his vineyard. And on that day, we will discover 
It is only by grace that any of us got invited to work the vineyard in the first place. We will discover that God is not going to treat anyone unfairly. On judgment day, there will be no miscarriage of justice. No one will receive what they don't deserve. Those who get in will know and they will sing with all their hearts that they only got in because of the generosity of God, not their hard work. And there will be surprises. Some who think they're guaranteed to get in will have not been relating to God through faith, but works. And the, the first will become last. And some who think there's not a chance I'm in because I'm such a made a mess of my life, but respond in faith, will get in and be first. So how do we apply the story to our lives today? How do the first hearers think and apply this remarkable story? Well, let's think about who the complainers in the story represent. Firstly, the complainers probably represent the Pharisees. The religious leaders, they didn't like God's grace particularly much because God's grace meant dirty sinners were equal to them. They'd worked hard obeying God's law and this dirty sinner who hasn't obeyed any of God's law comes in and is equal, a tax collector, a prostitute, a fisherman. They're all welcomed into the kingdom of God. That didn't seem very fair. And so woe betide us if we don't think we're Pharisees at some point. Those of us who have worked hard in the church or lived a moral life or sacrificed a lot, we can easily start to complain and get frustrated by those that don't seem to work as hard and haven't sacrificed as much. To any of us who are trying hard to live pure and moral and upright lives and, and yet other Christians, they don't seem to live the way that Jesus wants and, and yet he seems to bless them and I'm obeying all the rules and they're not obeying the rules and I just grumble and complain. There's an inner Pharisee in every one of us. That's why Jesus told the story. It's a story that reminds us that the length of service and the long hours of toil and the heat of the day constitute no claim on God and provide no reason why he should not be generous to those that have done less in the church. Secondly, the Jews might complain, mightn't they? They'd kept God's law for 2,000 years since it was given to Moses and now the Gentiles were getting in and they hadn't obeyed it and they never obeyed it and they didn't have to obey all the laws that the Jews had to obey. They seemed to get off without those laws. Grace offended their national pride and their racial pride. The Jews were the chosen people. Why would the poor disciples, the outcasts, the Gentiles being welcomed into the kingdom of God alongside Abraham, alongside Isaac, alongside Jacob? To the Jews, they had to learn the hard lesson that though they were God's chosen people, there was no place for personal, national or racial pride and nor can there be in this church. We're all equal. Doesn't matter what your background, what your race, nationality. In the church, everyone's equal because we got in by the generosity of the employer, not because any of us deserved anything based on our past. The Pharisees might complain. The Jews might complain. Maybe the disciples complained. I mean, the whole story is set up by Peter's question in chapter 19, 27, when he says, well, we've left everything to follow you. What will they be for us? You know, Peter's like, we're the leaders. We sacrifice so much for you, Jesus, don't we? 
And so anyone who's ever been a leader in this church or another church or who feels they've sacrificed, you know, Peter was going to become a martyr one day. He'd worked so hard. He'd put in extra effort. He'd, he'd carried the weight of the burden of being the apostle to the Jews on his shoulders. What about those who didn't have that burden on their shoulders? They didn't have that challenge of having to bear the weight of responsibility. They just sort of got an easy ride. Surely it's not equal. That, it's not fair that they're equal in the kingdom. Like, we do the hard work. And so this parable is a warning to anyone who's a leader or working hard in the church. Many Christians who have worked hard for God over a long period will have a lowly place in the kingdom because their motives were not purged of ideas of merit and reward. If you have a leadership role or have been in CCC for a number of years, it's so easy to go, I deserve a little bit more. Be careful. It's in every human heart to think a bit like that. Whoever you are, this parable applies to all of us. Did you notice the parable actually doesn't finish? Jesus does that time and time again with his parables. We don't know what the, the people who hide at the first of the day do in response to Jesus' last sentence. Do they go home mad? Do they, do they go, oh, I get it. Yeah, Grace, it's so generous, wonderful. I'm just going to trot off home, delighted with my denarius. We don't know how they respond. And Jesus does that so that we put ourselves in the parable and finish it off. And so the question is, are we operating out of a religious paradigm or a gospel paradigm when we think about the kingdom of God? And so let me finish like this. What moves you from operating out of the religious paradigm to a gospel paradigm? What changes the disposition of your heart? What changes you from being a grumbler to being grateful? What transforms you from complaining to praise? It's when you see that the owner of the vineyard came looking for you when you were desperate. You were in need. You were hungry. You were full of guilt and shame. You couldn't hold your head up high because you knew you'd made that many mistakes. And the owner of the vineyard came and sought you out and said, come and work with me. Not because I need you, but just because I love you. That's Christmas. That's Christmas. The owner of the vineyard comes looking for each of us. And what would it mean for him to restore our dignity and give us a hope and a joy and a purpose? He would bear the burden of the work and the heat of the day. He'd work from sunrise to sunset. He'd work harder than all of us. He lived the perfect, righteous life that deserved God's acceptance. And yet what did he face? The heat of eternal fairness. And he didn't deserve it. And it wasn't fair. But he did it to restore your dignity, to cover your shame, to forgive your sins, to feed you when you were hungry, to give you a purpose when you were stuck wondering what life was all about. All human merit shrivels before this burning, self-giving love. 
when sinful men and women are faced with a good, holy God, we have no clothes to hide our nakedness. Merit is excluded. All depend on grace alone. Without it, none of us would have a chance. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am. The owner came looking for you to find you. An understanding of how little you deserve and how much you get and what it costs the owner of the vineyard to bring you in, that changes duty to a joy. That changes a complainer into a praiser. That changes a grumbler into someone that's grateful. The good works are not the grounds of our salvation. They are the overflow of already being saved. It's the cross of Christ that will melt your heart again and again that grace is amazing for you. Do you think God owes you? Do you think you deserve more? Do you struggle to rejoice when others are blessed but you miss out? Do you get angry that circumstances don't go your way but go other people's way? Go to the cross. Go to the cross. It's the only thing that will change your heart. When you see what he did when you didn't deserve it and you see the love in his eyes as he came searching for you. Do you find yourself looking around church, subconsciously creating a hierarchy of the good Christians and the bad Christians, the good CCC members and the bad CCC members, or, or anything like that? Do you find yourself getting frustrated and impatient with those that don't change or won't change or won't respond or won't do what you do and you're doing the right thing? Go to the cross. It's the only way to change a hard heart. Do you find you grumbling and complain in daily life? Is this constant grumbling and complaining in your life? You find that your personal desires quickly become demands. It's not like I want this, I must have this, this is fair that I have this. Go to the cross. See the love in his eyes, calling you home, and what it cost him to bring you home. One final application before I finish. Matthew actually finished last week's parable with it. The thief on the cross. Do you remember Jesus is dying on a cross? He has two thieves either side, one mocks him. And the other one stands up for Jesus and says, no, don't mock him. We, we're, we're getting punished for what we deserve. He's, he's not getting punished for what he deserves. And he looks at Jesus and says, will you remember me in your where? Kingdom. And Jesus looks back at him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He got in at the 11th hour, literally. The 11th hour. And he was last. And he became first. So if any of you are here thinking... But Steve, you don't know my life. You don't know my pride. You don't know my mistakes. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how dirty I feel. There's just no way that I could get in. If you feel last, grace says you can be first. Come in. Stop hiding behind your failure to do good works and receive his grace and his warm welcome. See the love in his eyes and know that you can be with him in paradise too. Repent and believe the good news. Will you stand? I'm going to pray and we're going to sing to finish. Let's take a moment just to think about where we grumble and complain, which is a great sign that we have missed something of grace or being offended by grace. Just think of that. Where do you grumble or complain? And as you consider that question, I want you then to consider Jesus.
dying on a cross, bearing the heat of the day and the burden of the work so that you could come in. Ah, Lord Jesus, you told this parable because you knew what was in a human heart, every human heart, that the default mode of all our hearts is self-justification, is to prove ourselves by what we've done. And as a result, we look down on others who haven't worked as hard. We thank you, Lord, for giving us this parable that it doesn't even read in the parable infuriates us. And help us to see fairness from your perspective to not be envious of your generosity towards others, but rejoice in it. And most of all, Lord, to remember again that when we were lost, you came and found us. When we were just purposeless, you gave us purpose. When we were full of guilt and shame, you came and gave us dignity again and a fresh start. And we thank you, Jesus, for all that you did to face eternal fairness so we can be forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.